The Tom Woods Show, episode 1545. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you're like me, one of the most demoralizing things is when someone utters the truth and then lamely apologizes. Well, not these folks. I've got a free ebook of stories from heroic professors who told the PC mob to go pound sand. Stories from Jordan Peterson, Michael Rechtenwald, and others. Check it out at againstthemob.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Dan McCarthy is back with us again. Dan is editor of Modern Age, the venerable conservative journal, and he's been writing a number of pieces in the popular press that I thought would be interesting to discuss, having to do with the election, the Democratic primary, the impeachment proceedings, all this stuff we're going to be talking about right now. I want to, of course, remind you, this is Black Friday. It's the best day of the year to pick up the master membership at libertyclassroom.com. That is my flagship product. That is where you learn the actual stuff that those jerks in college did not teach you. You are going to learn it. You're going to learn non-PC, real live history and economics and other fields in the many courses we have, and you would get every single course we add to the site until we drop dead. So it is an amazing deal, plus all the stuff I did for the Ron Paul curriculum, all the stuff, it is slashed. The price is slashed right now. So head over to libertyclassroom.com and pick that up. Dan, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. You continue to be a presence in the New York Times. I am very impressed by this, and you write really, really interesting pieces for the New York Times. So you know, I don't I don't know what lesson there is to draw here. Perhaps there is no lesson, but congratulations to you that that continues to go on. And I read you all over the place. I read you in The Spectator. You continue to be editor of Modern Age. That's right. Yeah, I like to keep busy. Okay. Yeah, that's in fact, somebody in the comments section of a Facebook thread said, uh, do you ever sleep? Sort of reminds <laughs> me of the of the old Woods, who, who is now new and reformed and much lazier than he used to be. So, There are a few topics we might hit, but they're all really going to revolve around Trump. And so the big thing on everybody's mind, obviously, is impeachment. So I was reading a piece of yours, and I'll link to all of these at tomwoods.com slash 1545, everything I'm mentioning, about the Democrats not really wanting to remove him from office. And I've wondered about that myself. Do they just want to weaken him? But on the other hand, they're playing with fire here because— in the case of Bill Clinton, you know, he faced the same sort of situation, but the Republicans got pummeled after they did that. So it's a tricky thing they're playing with. So how do you come to that conclusion? Well, that's right. You've got the uh, sort of activist base of the Democratic Party, you know, out for blood. And Nancy Pelosi, who's generally a much more Machiavellian and uh, sort of rationalistic figure, she has feels as if she has to give the, uh, you know, sort of bloodthirsty base what it wants. And that's why we have impeachment. But I think Pelosi is well aware that moderate Democrats are very afraid of the way that impeachment might play out. And in fact, you're seeing a number of reports saying that um, the moderate Democrats who did quite well in 2018 are actually a little bit hot under the collar about impeachment, about the idea that, um, you know, this is defining the Democratic Party now as much as it's defining Donald Trump and his administration. And that's not necessarily working to the advantage of um, people who actually have competitive races in 2020. It's fine if you're, you know, a kind of left-wing insurgent, but it's not so great 
if you're a moderate Democrat. And I thought it was very interesting that the you know sort of first housewide vote they held in order to make these formal invest, uh, impeachment investigations, you actually had no defections on the Democratic on the Republican side rather, but you did have two Democrats who voted with Republicans basically to say we shouldn't have a formal impeachment proceeding. So what that means is that I think the Democrats are a little more um, frightened of the way things might get out of control here than the Republicans are. Now, the way that's being interpreted, namely this fact of there being no Republican leakage and, and the Republicans holding together on this, this is being portrayed as just evidence that the Republicans care nothing about the rule of law, that if this were a Democrat president in office, well, you would see some Democrats voting that way because the Democrats are impartial and they favor the Constitution and so on and on. I assume that's not your analysis of the situation. Well, it would be a really remarkable thing because you have quite a few Republican members of the House of Representatives who have decided not to run for re-election in 2020. So they are completely unbound, basically. They can do whatever they want. They can vote their conscience. And yet, uh, even though many of them really dislike Donald Trump, people like uh, Representative William Hurd, for example, from Texas, you still had a solid, you know, sort of Republican block that was not willing to proceed with an impeachment inquiry here. And I think that it's because they understand this is just a fishing expedition, much like the Mueller report was. In fact, this is even worse. And it's just going to go out there and, you know, they already have their verdict. They just need to find the evidence in order to um, justify, you know, the Democrats need to justify bringing actual charges. And that's what this whole adventure is all about. And let's talk a bit about that, about what it actually consists of, what it is they're accusing him of having done. We keep hearing the phrase quid pro quo used, and people know that it has something to do with Ukraine. But what you remind us of in one of the pieces I'm going to link to on the show notes page is that history did not begin with this telephone call that everybody is scrutinizing with uh, Donald Trump. But to the contrary, the folks in Ukraine, let's say, have do have an interest in how elections come out in the United States because, well, if there is a candidate who indicates that he may want to thaw U.S.-Russia relations, well, that's not necessarily music to the ears of Ukraine. So they may well want to have some influence. And it turns out that, as I say, history began before 2019. And what exactly is that history? Well, in 2016, the Ukrainians made it clear both publicly and privately that they didn't much like Donald Trump and that they had an interest in seeing Hillary Clinton prevail in that election. In private, what they did is that they um, seemed to have provided some information to Democrats about Paul Manafort, who, of course, was at one point uh, Donald Trump's campaign manager and who had very questionable business ties back in Ukraine. And then publicly, the Ukrainian government you know, was able to say a few things that indicated their discomfort, basically, with Donald Trump and their uh, much stronger comfort with Hillary Clinton. So, you know, that's all quite small stuff, but it's enough to raise a few questions as to, you know, how money that uh, the United States or that U.S. taxpayers give to Ukraine might be used, how it might turn around politically, whether Ukraine is, uh, you know, sort of meddling in our elections in a way that uh, we would find rather embarrassing. So I think it's quite, you know, sort of fair and proper for any presidential administration to ask Ukraine kind of what is the relationship here? What is your government willing to do? What, what are you guys, uh, you know, how are you involving yourselves in our elections? And also, how have you involved yourselves with our political figures and your business community, which is where this whole Hunter Biden and Burisma oil company uh, question comes in? That, um, you know, Ukraine is a, a country that, you know, is in a very hard place strategically. They're right next door to Russia. They've, uh, you know, sort of been dismembered by Russian forces. They've got serious problems. 
but it's also a very corrupt country. It's a country that you can't simply write a blank check to or even a check for a defined amount to and think that the money is all going to go to good uses. So it seems to me any administration, including Donald Trump's, is quite right to ask questions before releasing funds to them. And yet this is being portrayed as the most outrageous thing of all time. And I'm somebody who's fairly critical of almost everything government officials do. And I just cannot bring myself to become outraged at this. Of all possible things to be worried about, it seems to me virtually certain that if the people complaining about this felt like they had Donald Trump in their pocket one way or another, if they felt like they were dealing with a Mike Pence who's just going to go along with the, you know, whatever the establishment wants in foreign policy and, and on other things, this wouldn't even be an issue. Maybe I'm being cynical on this, but what do you think about that? No, I think that's exactly right. In fact, what's really at the heart of the matter here is the question of what U.S. foreign policy should be and who should make it. So on the one side, you have Donald Trump and you have the American electorate that put Donald Trump in office. They believe that the elected you know, head of the executive branch should be the one deciding on some of our relationships with um, foreign governments and that there are questions that our executive can rightly ask. And that in general, uh, Donald Trump was elected in order to have a more restrained foreign policy, a, a foreign policy that was a little bit more uh, transactional and less inclined to kind of hide the dirty realities of world politics behind the uh, sort of idealistic rhetoric that we heard from presidents like Bush and Obama, which actually, of course, that idealistic rhetoric led us into disastrous engagements, uh, certainly in the Middle East, but even in, in terms of other places as well. So Donald Trump was elected in order to reform our foreign policy and to change its direction. And yet the American Foreign Service and you know State Department officials and many other officials have this built-in sort of uh, Bush-Obama orientation. They basically look at the world and they see it in terms of the American political establishment as they've seen it for the last, you know, sort of 30 years or so, where Russia is a permanent enemy, Russia is a dangerous threat to us, NATO must constantly expand, and Ukraine is uh, a battleground where basically the forces of liberal democracy are fighting the sort of revived forces of czardom or communism or whatever uh, label they want to put on Vladimir Putin. And so at the heart of this impeachment imbroglio is a fundamental question of whether the permanent bureaucracy and the establishment is going to make our foreign policy or whether, on the other hand, Donald Trump and the voters who put him in office are going to be the ones to reorient things away from conflict and towards a more um, sort of negotiated kind of um, relationship. Now, let me just say in parentheses, this gets us a little bit off the uh precise line of argument we're, we're taking, but there have been some people, and you know, myself included, who say that there have been some good things from Trump, mainly what he's been saying. Like he had a, he went on a tear on Twitter some time ago talking about how bad, I think this was when really, I'd like to say when the hysteria was at its height, but you know, how can you quantify this? It seems like it's always at its height, but against him, he was lashing out against the deep state and lashing out against the military industrial complex, which he rewards heavily, by the way, which is such a bizarre thing to me. But he was saying just about the utter foolishness of the present foreign policy. He was just a tear on tweets and, and people say, yeah, but he doesn't, he hasn't delivered quite as much as we would like. And I agree with that, but my view is I'd rather have words and no action than no words and no action because the words get people thinking. Now, there have been areas where he's been at least okay and that for one thing, he hasn't launched any new wars, which in this day and age is actually an accomplishment. 
But still, the whole Syria alleged withdrawal was followed up on by, well, now we're going to send more troops to this, that, and the other place. So really, how do you evaluate his foreign policy? Well, as you'd said, not only is it better to have words that are good and uh, no action, but as opposed to no words or no action, but it's also better to have words that are good and no action or very little action as opposed to no words or <laughs> words but bad action, right? So I, I think you're exactly right that um, the fact that we haven't started a new war on the scale of the Iraq war that we got with George W. Bush in his first term or the Libyan uh, catastrophe that we got in the first term of Barack Obama, uh, that by itself is an achievement not having something quite like that with Donald Trump. But clearly, he has been losing his battle with the deep state here, and he will express his views. He'll say he wants to get out of Afghanistan, he wants to get out of Syria, and it won't happen. And you know, partly that is his fault for not following through, but he really is up against the entire apparatus of government. And not only the apparatus of government, but also the media and every other component of the establishment, which jumps in every time he makes one of these statements or tries to change policy and basically says, well, you are abandoning the Kurds, you are you know, sort of cozying up to dictators, you are going to destroy the whole world, basically, if you don't you know, not only reverse yourself, but actually send in more troops now and you know, restart all of the uh, military operations that the establishment prefers. So this is a case where um, you know, Donald Trump is a, a beginning, uh, but you, know, you need a lot more than this if you're actually going to change uh, the way our foreign policy is oriented. Let's talk Democrats now. I saw that you also were doing a post-debate analysis for the New York Times, who you thought did well and who did poorly. And I watched the debate also. I've been watching all these debates. And all I can say is I complained about the Republican debates, but I'll take that one <laughs> any day compared to these, partly for, just for interest and partly for I spent so long attacking the neocons, I forgot how awful the left is. I, I temporarily forgot. Now, you have a piece also related to this about who you think Elizabeth Warren fundamentally is and will indeed turn out to be before Americans' eyes if she should become the nominee and indeed the president. And you have a rather, maybe not cynical view, but not a particularly flowery view of Warren. Uh, there are people who listen to her and at face value, they think she is a by-the-book progressive. And you're not convinced. Now, why is that? Well, you know, I think she's just a very Machiavellian and power-seeking politician. And um, I think she is obviously left of center. But, um, you know, if you look at something like foreign policy, for example, she's been quite cagey as to where she actually stands. And it seems to me that she is the kind of politician, much like Bill Clinton, who is willing to tack left or tack, you know, towards the center, um, towards being, you know, anti-establishment or pro-establishment depending on what's going to be advantageous to her in the long run. And you've seen this throughout her career with these rather mythological or fictional claims about her biography, about being an American Indian, one of them, of course, but then also um, a lot of claims about the circumstances under which she lost a job once. She said it was because she was pregnant. The facts don't really seem to back that up. Um, she really does seem like an almost sociopathic politician. And I think she's dangerous because she's highly intelligent, she is quite left-wing, but whereas I can look at someone like Bernie Sanders and, yeah, his ideas are awful and he's dangerous, nonetheless, I, I at least credit his sincerity. I think, well, I know where he stands on things. He's not going to suddenly turn out to be even worse than I expect. 
uh, with Elizabeth Warren, I, I have no such expectations. I think actually she could wind up being both more intelligent, more effective, and more dangerous in ways we don't even count on right now than any of us uh, expect, um, especially in something like foreign policy. She could turn out to be very much, uh, much closer to Hillary Clinton than we had uh, had any reason to believe before this. Now, that that is the first time I'm hearing this, but apparently you're not alone. There are others who think this way about her uh, as well. Do you have a prediction right now? I mean, first of all, where do you think Bloomberg's going to fit into this? Here's my prediction. I wrote this uh, out the other day. Obviously, he was elected mayor of New York, so he can get elected to something. But if you were looking for somebody with less charisma than Hillary Clinton, you found him. Because I find him to be somebody who generates zero excitement whatsoever. He's passionate about finding things that give people pleasure that he can ban or restrict in some way. Like that seems to be his his motivation. He's absolutely not compelling in any way. I, so my view is that he could spend all the money in the world and I just don't think he's going to catch on. I'm happy to be corrected on this, but I, I welcome your thoughts. Oh, I agree. He's a vanity candidate. Um, no, I think the Democratic field right now is very hard to predict. I had been thinking that Elizabeth Warren was going to overcome Joe Biden, would probably be the nominee. Uh, but she's actually lost a few points in the polls uh, since uh, the last debate. And not just because of the debate, but because you know the de- other candidates have been wearing down on her, pointing out that the claims she makes about uh, the policy she's going to deliver are completely unrealistic. And um, that seems to have uh, sunk in with the voters. So right now, I'm, you know, she's still, you know, quite a tough and effective candidate. Pete Buttigieg, who is also awful and is also, I think, a, a kind of sociopathic, um, unpredictable candidate in some ways, he's rising right now. He's doing very well in both New Hampshire and Iowa. Joe Biden continues to hang on to, you know, about twenty to thirty percent of the vote. And then Bernie Sanders has started to uh, stage a comeback as well. So it's really a four-person race uh, right now. Um, I hesitate to say who's going to come up on top, although I'm starting to think that maybe the conventional wisdom was right a few months ago and that Joe Biden is actually much more durable than I had expected. He's you know, lost some momentum, but it's surprising the degree to which he's been able to sort of cling to the support he has. Do you want to predict who the nominee will be? I mean, I'm asking you something totally unreasonable. But why not? It's fun, right? It's fun. Well, like I said, I mean, right now I would say it's almost, you know, a 25 percent possibility of each of those four. Uh, so there's Biden. just no way to, to know. I mean, so at this point, anything could tip the scales or it would be that it's just extremely close between those four. I, I think it's very dynamic. Um, and that some of the you know things I was predicting earlier, at one stage, I thought that Elizabeth Warren was a much more disciplined candidate than any of her opponents and that that was a reason why she was going to get the nomination. But it's turned out that Buttigieg has been, uh, you know, quite effective as well. So I no longer have uh, this sneaking suspicion that Elizabeth Warren's going to be the nominee. And uh, and Biden, you know, I keep expecting him to just fall over, and uh, that'll be the end of his campaign. But uh, instead, he, uh, you know, uh, is resilient. So um, I really am, uh, you know, I think you could have a hung convention at this point. You could actually have, you know, the Democrats not having a clear winner as a result of their primaries and caucuses, and then they have to hash it out. Uh, it's really, you know, that's a long shot prediction maybe, but it's um, it's very hard to see how any one of these four candidates or any of the others is going to break away from the pack and just consolidate support. Do you have a theory as to why Deval Patrick jumps in so late? 
Well, again, it's vanity. And the fact that none of the other candidates has been able to consolidate momentum means that all of these, uh, you know, Deval Patricks and Michael Bloombergs and who knows who else might might do it, uh, Hillary Clinton perhaps, they all see this uh, opening that they didn't see a few months ago. They think the, the field is weak and that there's, uh, you know, some space for a new entry, which, you know, the field is already overcrowded. So I think they're probably wrong about that. Which ones do you think are the toughest for Trump to handle and which would be, of the plausible candidates, who are the toughest to handle, who would be easier? Well, I think the toughest are, on the one hand, Joe Biden, uh, because he does seem to resonate with blue-collar, uh, you know, Rust Belt workers, the kind of people that voted for Donald Trump in 2016. He could, you know, easily win a place like Pennsylvania. He could win, you know, some of the um, states like Michigan and Wisconsin that, uh, that Trump won. He could even, you know, Biden might have a chance in Ohio. So, um, I think Biden would still be very dangerous. I think Bernie Sanders potentially could be dangerous if he's able to say that, uh, you know, if the economy goes south, for example, in 2020, which is always a possibility, then Bernie Sanders could be the kind of um, throw the bums out candidate. He could be the the new insurgent and the guy, you know, kind of stirring up a class war and getting a lot of momentum from that. As far as the less dangerous candidates go, I think Pete Buttigieg just doesn't have um, – the poll with the core of the Democratic base, with African-American voters in particular, I mean, Buttigieg has had absolutely ridiculous sort of scandals and gaffes with regard to black voters, such as using, uh, you know, pictures of Africans as, uh, you know, sort of images of his uh, supposed African-American supporters. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's horrible. Clownish. So I think Buttigieg is, is not a big danger to Donald Trump. Buttigieg is like the perfect candidate of sort of the namby-pamby establishment that wants to, you know, have someone who's very smart, which Buttigieg is, someone who's not very ideologically defined, which again is Buttigieg. That appeals to a lot of suburban voters, but I don't think it appeals to blue-collar voters or African-American voters or the people that uh, Buttigieg would need to win in order to defeat Trump. And then Elizabeth Warren, I'm starting to think, is also quite vulnerable. You know, she the left remains kind of suspicious about her, at least the the real sort of Sanders uh, left is suspicious of her. And it seems to me that, you know, there's plenty of Wall Street people who also don't like her. So she may actually not be able to consolidate the Democratic coalition either. Let's go back to the impeachment, because I'm not following the proceedings at all. I feel like watching all the blankety-blank Democratic debates is enough of a sacrifice that I make for folks. I'm not sitting through this. But I do see a lot of headlines, and I see some commentary on Twitter from people critical of the president. And the way they make it sound, it's just one testimony after another and one bombshell after another. And the cumulative effect of this ought to be, in their view, to make people highly, highly suspicious of Donald Trump, if not conclude that he certainly is guilty of something significant. Are you saying they're just blowing smoke on all of this? Well, it's a lot like the uh, Mueller report was and a lot like all of these other uh, claims of uh, uh, wrongdoing on the part of Donald Trump, whether it's the emoluments clause or the idea that, you know, something is lurking in Donald Trump's tax records. You know, you've seen these relentless drumbeats emanating from the press and from Democrats over the last three years, and none of it has panned out. And so currently, you know, every little detail that one of these witnesses brings forth is now meant to be something that's going to convict the president. But None of it actually demonstrates that the president was doing you know, what he did in order to mess around in the 2020 election. I think that's the thing they really have to prove. If Donald Trump had gone to a foreign leader and said, look, I want you to fabricate a charge. I want you to say that you know, one of my rivals or one of my rival's family members committed murder and like did something really you know, like that, and I want you to come out and, and talk about this, that would, I think, be you know, a clear impeachable offense. But if Donald Trump is going out there and saying, 
wait a minute, what were the circumstances under which this prosecutor got fired that Joe Biden went out and boasted about getting fired? What, what, what was that all about? If he says, what is the nature of American political families, you know, getting sweetheart deals with energy companies in your country, even though there are these political ties between us where your country is also getting taxpayer money from Americans. What is that all about? It seems to me these are legitimate questions. And saying that Donald Trump might have somehow stood to gain in 2020 as a result of them is kind of beside the point, right? I mean, if this, these things are, uh, they were covered by the media. In some cases, they were things that even the Obama administration had asked questions about. I think these are, you know, fully legitimate. And having the impeachment proceedings bring out witness after witness to say, oh yeah, Donald Trump actually did have some questions, or we did understand that Donald Trump wanted to hold up the uh, you know military aid until we heard from uh, Zelensky as to what he was going to do. I mean, all of that is beside the point. I mean, what they have to prove is that there was actually some sort of criminal intent going on here. All right, one last thing. I saw on Drudge, yet another headline, that says uh, 50% want removal. So I assume 50% of people polled want the president removed from office. What does that portend for him? I don't know what the similar results were for Bill Clinton at this time in his presidency, but isn't that a pretty bad number? Is, does he recover from that? It's not that bad of a number. Uh, basically, you know, half the country likes Donald Trump and half the country doesn't. <laughs> so what that impeachment number is telling us is what we already know, which is that there is this close divide on the question of, you know, is Donald Trump doing a good job and does he deserve to be reelected? And now impeachment is simply a proxy for those other questions. You'll notice that Donald Trump's um, favorability rating has remained between, you know, about 40 and 45 percent throughout the last two weeks. And it's a little bit up and a little bit down, uh, but really has been very little affected by the impeachment proceedings. It seems to me that all of this is just signaling that, um, you know, you're going to have a really big fight in 2020 when it gets to uh, the voters. Of course, you need to have a two-thirds majority in the Senate to remove a president from office as a result of impeachment. And if you have less than a two-thirds block of uh, voters you know, in polls saying that they want the president removed, it seems to me that senators take note of that. So if you have you know, 50% saying in some polls that they want the president removed, well, the question is, where are those voters? Are they in California? Are they in these solidly blue states? Are they in the states where the senators actually have to worry about uh, getting reelected? So no, I don't think 50% is a particularly uh, shocking number. I think it's probably a little inflated in that particular poll, but I suspect it's somewhere a little bit north of 40%. And what it just tells you is that, yeah, 40% of the country are Democrats and, you know, um, a half of a percent there may be, uh, you know, never Trump Republicans like Bill Kristol. And they really hate Donald Trump and they want to see him gotten rid of one way or the other. They're happy to see that happen through impeachment. You know, they'll try to do it at the ballot box if that fails. Whereas uh, the other half of the country is open minded or actually supporting Donald Trump. And at least 40 percent of the country is behind him. Let's say a quick word about modernagejournal.com, which is the website for Modern Age, the venerable periodical that you edit now. Can you tell us a little something about maybe some interesting pieces in the most recent issue that might whet people's appetites to go check that out? Because I'll also link to modernagejournal.com at tomwoods.com slash 1545. We have one of the greatest Austrian economist cultural thinkers who's ever lived in the pages of the current issue of Modern Age, and that would be Paul Cantor. Paul Cantor is a professor at the University of Virginia, and he actually knew and studied with uh, Ludwig von Mises himself. And Cantor applies his understanding of culture and uh, human nature to uh, the study of the television show Deadwood in this issue of Modern Age. Deadwood is a uh, an HBO Western that's been uh, a critical rave. 
And uh, recently, the series was concluded with a, uh, a television movie that came out through HBO. So uh, Paul Cantor takes a close look at that, and I think uh, listeners to this podcast would very much enjoy that. We also have a uh, an essay, uh, really the lead essay of the issue is by Michael Anton, writing about imperialism and uh, self-government and why imperialism has always been detrimental to self-government. And this is something that uh, classical sources uh, such as Xenophon recognized. It's something that uh, early modern or Renaissance sources like Machiavelli recognized. So it's really showing you know, some of the anti-imperial critique that's very familiar to uh, listeners of this podcast in a new light, in the light of these classic texts and even coming from an author who has a, a certain degree of uh, sort of Straussian DNA within his background, but who nonetheless, even from that perspective, says that empire is a terrible and destructive thing to any kind of Republican virtue. Well, that is modernagejournal.com where you can find those things. So folks should check that out. This journal has been around, I think, since 1957, if I'm remembering this right. Was that, was that it? That's correct, yeah. So 62 years. Yeah, so quite a long time. And I believe it was... If memory serves, it was founded by Russell Kirk and initially edited by him. Is that, that right? That's correct. Yeah, Russell Kirk founded it uh, with help from uh, Henry Regnery. All right. So this is yeah, this goes back a ways, and we've got some illustrious people associated with it over the years. So check it out, modernagejournal.com. And as I said, articles by Dan related to what we've been talking about will be linked to tomwoods.com/slash fifteen forty-five. Well, Dan, I appreciate you coming on at the last minute. I as I had somebody fall ill and. You know, I got Thanksgiving coming up, and I don't know what I'm going to do to replace him. And, well, Dan McCarthy, I wanted to have you on anyway, and you came through for me at the last minute. I appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome, Tom. All right, that'll do it for another week of episodes of The Tom Woods Show. Uh, remember, we're doing the Contra Cruise next year, one year from now. Well, actually, no, it's about 13 months. Uh, what, what is it, 11 months? 11 and a half months? I don't even know. Who, who cares? I was the captain of the math team. Did you know that? I don't know why I can't do it. I'm just tired. <laughs> just producing all these episodes. All right, but on the Contra Cruise this year, we're going to have as special guests Scott Horton and Dave Smith. And that is going to be an absolute blast. And we have a special bonus for early bird reservers. That is to say, people who reserve their uh, cabins early, you get a little early bird bonus. So check it out at ContraCruise.com and I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.